Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in the Bay Area, it's time for Bay Area Business Radio. Now, here's your host. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Bay Area Business Radio, and this is going to be a good one. But before we get started, it's important to recognize our sponsor, Leah Davis Coaching, inspiring women of color to claim their wealth legacy. Today on Bay Area Business Radio, we have Elizabeth Carter with Elizabeth L. Carter Esquire, LLC. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to learn about your practice. Tell us a little bit about your practice. How are you serving folks? Yes, thank you. Um, so Elizabeth L. Carter Esquire, LLC is a crowdfunding securities law firm um, that represents investment companies, small businesses, nonprofits, and cooperatives with the legal strategy and compliance of raising capital from investors. So for folks who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about crowdfunding? I'm sure everybody's, you know, heard of Kickstarter or Indiegogo or GoFundMe where there's, you know, people go out to the crowd or go out to people they know and say, hey, I got this project or I got this thing. But there, there's also a place for it in uh, in business and in, in the investment community as well, right? Yeah. So crowdfunding is a particular um, area or specific area of the law um, concerning capital raising. Um, and to be more sort of um, specific, so you have the business law, right, which is an area of law. And underneath business law is securities law, which is more specific in the area of business law. And then underneath securities law is crowdfunding law. So securities concerns um, any the legal rules and federal and state rules regarding private fund, fundraising from investors. So not the GoFundMe, which is more donation, and not the Indiegogo, which are rewards, but actual securities or um, um, when you're giving money um, with the expectation of a significant return, right? So that's the difference between a, a donation, you're giving money, you're not expecting anything in return. Rewards, the only thing you're expecting in return um, is sort of a small token. Um, really, you're just there to support the business. Um, but the investment piece, um, as an investor, you you are actually uh, expecting some type of return, whether it's, in, and no return is guaranteed, but the idea is that I'm giving you money so that you can work hard and provide uh, some return or money back to me, um, um, plus, you know, whatever gave you, plus interest or something, right? Um, and so what crowdfunding does is, is basically this is that area of the law, but there are exemptions under the Securities Act, which is the securities law that we're speaking about, that... Um, allows that business to raise capital from investors without having to register with the SEC or do ongoing reporting requirements, uh, which again can amount to uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So crowdfunding is designed for small businesses to cost-effectively raise capital from investors. Now, um, this type of raise is kind of new, right? Because historically, the only people that can get involved with investing in small businesses in this manner were kind of accredited investors. And those are people who had, uh, you know, a certain amount of wealth that was kind of vetted and kind of deemed that they were able to take this kind of risk. But now through this vehicle, people that aren't accredited can invest as well. Right. Right. So exactly. So crowdfunding if in a nutshell, um, there are two aspects to it. Uh, one, it's the fact that now, like as you're mentioning, um, a, a business can raise capital from non-accredited investors just as they would accredited investors. So accredited investors are defined as investors, individual investors, um, as people who have um, over 
$200,000 in income, annual income, or over a million dollars in excluding the value of someone's home. So these are just people who have investments elsewhere that are mounting to more than $1 million. And then non-accredited investors are basically 90% of the rest of the population, right? Um, most people are not accredited investors. They do not have over a million dollars in net worth, nor do they have uh, possibly uh, over $200,000 in income. And so with crowdfunding, allow a small business to um, um, publicly advertise, that's the other quality. So publicly advertise to non-accredited investors without having to register. Previously, and this is since 2012, a Jobs Act of 2012 allowed for that. Previously, the business would have to uh, have known that, that investor privately, so whether a friend, family, or a business associate, to then be able to ask them for money without, ha- without violating any security rules, right? Whether they're accredited or non-accredited, um, you have to know them. And so it kind of was exclusionary, right? So only people who actually had wealth and people who were, uh, that you know, right? So there's a network thing that you were able to uh, support, uh, have them able to support your business. So now today though, with crowdfunding, you can go online. You don't have to know this investor. You don't have to be friends with them or have a long-standing relationship with them. You can publicly advertise to them and they do not have to have, be wealthy, right? Just so long as um, you disclose properly, let them know what the offer is, let them know what your business is and do not misrepresent. So that's where the legal or securities legal or the lawyer comes in to help you communicate that effectively through your disclosure documents. Now, um, does crowdfunding in this way have to only be equity in the company or can it be debt as well? Debt is included. Debt is a security um, as well as membership interest in an LLC, you know, operating agreement. When you have that agreement and people are signing on, that is also considered a security. So, right, an equity can include um, stocks, but it also can include, again, like I said, that, that operating agreement where you're agreeing to provide money for some type of uh, ownership stake, but debt is also very commonly used. Um, and, and the reason why debt is included is because even though you're not getting an ownership stake, there still is an expectation of return in the form of interest rates. And um, are your clients contacting you before they've begun this or after they began it and realized they were in over their head and it's too complicated? <laughs> Ideally before, most of the time it's before. And that's, that's when it's more cost effective because before I have people who have gone either gone through the process by themselves and and were told that they need a securities lawyer or were found out later like one one case actually the SEC denied their filing and said it was actually fraudulent even though the founder didn't intend for it to be fraudulent or or misrepresenting um, that's really what it is because fraud is more intentional but they all run in the same category there's a rule against misrepresentation and fraud. And so misrepresentation can simply be that you didn't disclose properly or you didn't disclose fully. You missed some information. You, you omitted something. And so that is more costly because that particular person paid for an attorney to do that work and the attorney didn't do it properly. So now they have to go find another attorney and almost pay double, right? Because the new attorney is saying, well, this, I have to review everything. We have to start over. And so ideally they should come before they make the offer, before they file anything, before they start asking people for money. You save a whole lot of money just getting that advice and strategy going and uh, uh, then later. Now, is this something that uh, somebody should contact you at the very kind of beginning of their business? Um, if they're thinking of launching, like should startups contact you if this is one of the ways that they might try to access funding? Or is this something that they have to have already established a business with clients and it's kind of ongoing and they're trying to get it to a new level. So then they're going to explore crowdfunding and then they would contact you. 
Yeah, I think both, uh, legally both. I mean, legally, so long as you have a strong business plan um, that shows, that really lay out, lays, lay out your plan to A, operate, B, bring in revenues, and C, generate returns for your investors. You have to lay that out. There should be some formula. There should be some um, uh, visualization that shows the investor that if I give you X amount of dollars, which is what you're asking for, that over time, certain amount of time, and that should also be laid out, um, you will get X amount of dollars in return or X amount of uh, percent in return. That should be laid out. Um, so usually the founders should have access to someone that can really work through those numbers and those financials for them, right? Uh, whether it's an accountant or a financial advisor that can guide them through really coming up with uh, numbers that are more accurate. Now, again, these are projections, so they're not they're not truly accurate or facts. They're more saying more likely than not, this is what you can expect. Um, and so for me, that's what I'm going to ask. They'll, they'll say, I want to raise X amount of dollars and I want to, this is how much we're going to give in return. So I'll ask them, well, how do you, what did you come up with that number? How do you, what was your basis? What's your standing behind that? It's not just, you can't just say that, right? And so I do help guide, but the idea is for them to come up with a strong team, marketing, accounting, lawyer, to then be successful. So legally, we can draft the documents, make sure they're not misrepresenting or misrepresenting anyone. But for me, as an attorney who represents underrepresented founders, where it's already difficult to obtain capital in the traditional means, I want to make sure that they're more successful than not. So I built a team called what I call an ecosystem around me so that we can make sure that they're more successful than not. And in crowdfunding, what makes you successful is the crowd, right? Is your particular investors, right? That are your who are also your friends, family, customers, neighbors, and then strangers that just want to support you. So you want to be able to build that prior to or sooner than later when you're starting uh, to make your offer. Now, when you're working with a client, um, are you coming in just as this expert in crowdfunding, or do you also take on some of the kind of general business law issues they might have? Oh yeah, so so I do. I do the general business law, and and, and what that looks like is. I help with the strategy of choosing what type of entity or entity. Sometimes there's a strategy to create one entity that will be the parent company. Another will be a subsidiary, especially if they're interested in becoming an investment company or fund, because the other part is we're looking for an exemption. There's two statutes that we want to make sure we're exempt from. Um, it's the Securities Act of 1933, which concerns the act of asking people for money. And then there's the Investment Company Act of 1940, which concerns the entity itself. So if you're saying, I want to create a fund that would then ask people to invest and then reinvest in other companies, my mind is saying, okay, you're trying to create an investment company, an investment fund. So if you want to prevent that sort of yearly ongoing costly reporting requirements, we need to find an exemption. So part of that is looking at the strategic way of structuring these entities, these companies, uh, so that they're exempt from both the, from both acts or, you know, just generally insecurities, but also just depending on what their needs and wants are, right. They may have certain membership, um, um, uh, uh, privileges for certain people, certain classes. So we do that sort of structuring the governance. And then we go into the particular investment specific and structure the term sheet, the subscription agreement, the offering statement or the, the disclosure documents, sometimes called the form C. Um, and so we, yeah, so it's both. So the general business governance and then the contracts surrounding investments. Now, uh, can you share kind of one of your success stories of one of your clients that have been able to get that escape velocity and make a go of this? Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to share uh, one of my clients called the Drivers Co-op based out of New York City, uh, created an alternative ride share company, um, alternative to like Uber or Lyft, right? And, and their model 
um, is designed to allow the drivers to be owners of the company, right? So unlike Uber or Lyft, Uber or Lyft, the drivers are more independent contractors. They're not, they don't receive any equity. You know, they have to have their own sort of um, business um, business model or business uh, costs and, and, and revenue. So that, and it's costly for the consumer um, because the profits are going to uh, certain shareholders that, you know, are made, or that are not necessarily the drivers, but the our drivers co-op, the drivers are actually co-owners of the co-op or of the, of the company. And so what they did was, in addition to the equity piece, which are owned by the members, member drivers, they created an offer, a debt offer, um, based upon the revenues of the company. Um, and up to 2.5 million, they raised over 1 million and they fairly raised up fairly quickly. I'll say in a couple of weeks, they raised $1 million um, um, through regulation crowdfunding. So through that exemption, they're able to raise from both accredited and non-accredited investors. And they receive a lot of support all over the country. Um, people are very interested in the co-op model, but also the fact that they're providing an alternative to sort of this conglomerate, big, big corporations, right? Uber and Lyft. So that was, so they were able to kind of use that, those funds to launch and then maybe, are they only in New York or are they around the country now? Right. So they were, so the funds were designed to, like you said, to launch, to hire new staff, um, and then to eventually to expand to other cities. That is the goal. They want to expand across the country with the same model. So now you, you use the term co-op. Can you explain what that is and why that entity might be kind of better for these kind of um, uh, projects? Right, right, right. So co-op is, is any entity that is owned and controlled by those that use the services. So if we're talking about a worker co-op, sort of what the driver's co-op is, um, it is owned and controlled by its workers, those that, that provide labor to the company. If we're talking about a housing co-op, we're talking about the tenants owning and controlling the residential building where they reside. Um, sort of like a condo, but instead of individual deeds, it's only one master deed, so to speak, or blanket mortgage on top of the building. And then the members own a share of the company that then owns the building. Um, and, and in terms of a consumer co-op, a lot of them are grocery stores. Those who consume or even credit unions, those who bank at the credit union are also co-owners um, or if it's a nonprofit, just have the ability to control and vote on decisions within the entity. So that is attractive because it counters sort of uh, this disconnect between, particularly the worker co-op sense, uh, this power imbalance and disconnect between the owners or the employer and the employees and the workers, right? So now you take away that power imbalance and the workers are the employers. They're, they're one and the same. And that's something that you help firms with as well, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually, so I, co-ops is something that I have particular knowledge and, and, and expertise in and actually uh, was part of forming a nonprofit back in 2016 that was designed to create and support co-ops which is why I have affiliation with the Sustainable Economies Law Center based in Oakland, uh, which is also designed to do the same thing. And not only just co-ops, but other solidarity economies to help support legally um, these new sort of alternative business structures that are more supportive of social enterprise or more support, supportive of some uh, beyond profits, right? You're a business going beyond profits. And so that's what co-ops are really known for. And yes, I have a particular expertise in creating and being, being creative and coming up with unique structures um, to create that model. Now, let's talk about that work um, in Oakland. Can you talk about that Black Capital Matters Legal Fund and the work that you're doing to help uh, in that area? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, uh, my firm is a mission-based firm specifically to support 
the legal strategy and compliance of uh, small businesses, investment companies that are owned and controlled by underrepresented founders, namely black, um, black entrepreneurs. And the reason being is that, for instance, black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs and the least likely to be supported by venture capital, bank financing, or just generally philanthropy and et cetera, right? And so the idea is to be able to be a, a resource a represent, representative resource to these companies and businesses so that we can come up with unique strategies like the co-op model, right? Or like forming ecosystems with credit unions to be able to offset or counter uh, those disadvantages. So, so the, the Black Capital Matters Legal Fund is one way that the firm is doing that. Uh, we decided to create the fund to offset the legal costs of raising capital. So the firm itself already provides one of the most, if not the most affordable uh, legal rates when it comes to securities law, but even then, it's still a law firm, and law firms' um, uh, billable rates can be out of reach for for many small businesses. And so, even with that in mind, we're thinking, well, how can we be more accessible? Right? How can we be more democratizing so that more businesses who are, you know, equally talented, have great ideas, just need that uh, legal support and marketing support to be able to shine through and grow? How do we best do that? And so, as a law firm in this space, and as a law firm that is particularly designed to be accessible, uh, we wanted to be able to be creative and unique to partner with a nonprofit organization to be a fiscal sponsor to help put forth this uh, legal fund designed to, again, provide subsidized legal costs while they're raising capital. Otherwise, what happens is these businesses just go alone and do it wrong or just risk risk doing it wrong and risk being uh, flagged by the SEC, which can amount to you know financial fines or uh, criminal penalties, right? And so we want to prevent that. Now, what type of firms um, should think about going the crowdfunding route? Or is that, you think, any firm that's thinking about getting into business, that this is appropriate for them? Yeah, anything, anything. So crowdfunding is a means of acquiring investors. So even today, venture capital, which is um, has historically uh, always been in private equity space, but historically um, have been a type of investor that controls the deal, right? They'll come in and they're the ones who provide the term sheet. They're saying, this is how much we're going to invest. This is how much control we're going to have. So historically, that was sort of the way these startups could get funding um, because again, banks thought they were too risky. Like, what are you? You don't have any revenues. You just have a business plan, right? They, they didn't trust it, but the venture capital was a professional investor and could do their own due diligence and see farther ahead in the future and say, actually, looking at the market, looking at your, your attraction, your, your mailing list, whatever, we know we can value this company in a certain kind of way. And so we're going to see ahead of the future, but we're going to make sure we put terms in there that are more favorable to us so that, you know, you know, we can cash out at some point or we can go make this company go public at some point. So what crowdfunding did was actually say, no, actually, the business is going to actually control the terms. They're going to put in their own term sheet what they was best for the business for the long term, the longevity of the business, and then venture capital fund or others, if you want to invest, you have to agree to these terms, right? So it flips the control a bit uh, with the invest in, within investment space. And so really any business can get involved, but I will if the business, whether startup or small business, but I'll say that if the startup is really interested in traditional route and going through the investment or VC funds that invest traditionally, they may be they may not be attracted to the crowdfunding means because again it, it, it turns of the terms where the business is actually in control and the VC may not like that so so yes and no it just depends on who is that particular investor and what they're interested in now if somebody wants to learn more have a more substantive conversation with you or somebody on the team what's the website www.elc 
ESQ.com. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your story today. You're doing important work and we appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, this is Lee Cantor. We'll see you all next time on Bay Area Business Radio. 